We're back in the book of Ephesians, so please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 1. It's been two weeks since our last message in Ephesians, so let me give you a quick recap. Our last message in Ephesians was about how love and unity as a church is essential to God's salvation plan. Chapter 2 ended by saying the church is God's temple, is God's dwelling place. We are the home that God is building for himself. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus died and rose again, not just to save sinners like, like me and like you, but to create a single new humanity that is holy, righteous, and united in love. Through faith in Jesus, God has not only given believers a new life, he has also made us part of a new society and family, his church. So, so this main theme of, of Ephesians is actually the central importance of the church in God's salvation plan. And what, what we've been looking at so far in chapters 1 to, to 3 is this overview of God's plan to unite everything, to put everything at peace in heaven and earth in Jesus. And it tells us how God creates his church through Jesus. What we're going to be looking at very soon in the coming weeks in chapters 4 to 6 focuses on the practical implementation of God's plan. And what we're studying today in chapter 3, verse 1 to 13, continues this theme of the importance of, of church. And it tells us that the way or, or the method that God has chosen to use his church to save the world. So we're going to read our passage together. Uh, just follow along as I read Ephesians 3, starting from verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. going to start this morning off with just a, a little illustration and, and thinking exercise. So if, if you had the opportunity, right, turn back your clocks, restart your career, and you had the opportunity to work at any organization or business in the world for the exact position that you wanted, 
Who would it be with? You know, a couple of places might have popped into your mind. But, but to really answer this question, you would have to think about another question, which is, what are characteristics in an organization that you would be proud to be part of? Characteristics might be things like well-organized, competent, productive, influential, reputable, doing good work, uh, good culture, good values, operates with integrity, uh, does something meaningful and, and beneficial for the world. Let me ask a slightly different question. What kind of church would you be proud to be part of? And there are several layers to this question. You know, what kind of church are you proud to be part of? The, the first part of this would be, you know, are, are you proud to be part of Jesus' universal church in earth? That means identifying yourself as a Christian who has repented of sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation, and you've expressed that through baptism. And depending on the current situation and place where you live, you know, the answer to this question might change. If Christians generally have a good reputation where you live, then the answer is, is probably yes. But that may change when we consider churches who may not have made the best impression in terms of witness to the, to the world or, or the culture around them. Uh, so you might be thinking of uh, churches on the news that refuse to follow government policy on social distancing, and you'd be like, oh, okay. So that's one aspect of the question, just, you know, being identified with the word church in general. Second aspect of this question is, are, are you proud to be a part of your local church? Meaning the church that you actively participate in as a member. And for most of us here, uh, currently, this would mean EEC, Emmanuel English Church. And, and here's where our answer might change again. You go both ways, right? Bad to worse or worse to better. Especially, you know, when you start to think about the, the flaws and weaknesses we have as a whole church. We might think of our own shortcomings, uh, of, uh, you know, of individuals, of, of leaders, uh, of the pastor, and then we might sort of like hesitate. We might compare EEC to, to churches who are, who are bigger, who look better, who, you know, look more competent in how they operate, and, and we can feel discouraged at our weaknesses and, and limitations. If you look at the, the last verse in our passage, verse 13, it, it tells us the Ephesian church is feeling discouraged. And the reason they were feeling discouraged is because of the Apostle Paul's weakness and limitations. Paul was the one who started the church in Ephesus. He personally discipled the first Christians there for three whole years. He was the leader that the church looked up to. And Paul wasn't just the leader of the Ephesian church. If you look at verses 1 to 5, it tells us Jesus himself had appointed Paul to be an apostle on behalf of the Gentiles. As an apostle... Jesus gave Paul the authority and responsibility of overseeing the growth and development of all the Gentile churches, which is basically every church in the world at that time except Jerusalem. 
But even though Paul had such a high position in the church, he was suffering in prison. And this discouraged the Ephesians. As their apostle, Paul was supposed to have power and authority from God. He was supposed to be competent, skilled, qualified. He wasn't supposed to be left weak and helpless in prison. But being in prison was a, was a shameful thing. And Paul's imprisonment was a source of shame for the Ephesians. It wasn't something they could take pride in. Ten years ago, uh, Facebook was a place that everybody wanted to work at. It was connecting the world in, in very positive ways. So all the young people wanted jobs at Facebook. But now, with all the controversy surrounding it, uh, especially you know, from, from Zuckerberg and, and all the criticism from governments and the harm that it's done, uh, people are keeping their distance. People are leaving Facebook. They're, they're ashamed to be part of Facebook now. If Paul, Jesus' appointed leader for the, for the Ephesians, for the church, is in prison, what did that say about them as a church? Did it mean that they were even weaker than Paul? But Paul's response to the Ephesians is this. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, don't be discouraged. Don't be ashamed. Be confident. God uses weakness to display his glory. That's what he has done through me as an apostle, and that's what he's doing through us together as a whole church. The main point for this morning is God uses the weakness of his church to display his wisdom and glory. God uses the weakness of his church to display his wisdom and glory glory. The church is central to God's salvation plan. That, that means every believer needs to make church a central part of their life to obediently follow God's plan for them. But this is difficult because churches are filled with weak, imperfect people like, like me and like you and like the Apostle Paul. M many times we look at the weaknesses of our church the many mistakes that have been made, and it causes us to feel discouraged. We feel ashamed. We don't feel proud of our church. But, but God, through the Apostle Paul in this passage, tells us that Christians should actually see things in the exact opposite way. God, in His wisdom, has planned from eternity from before time began, to reveal his wisdom through the weakness of his church. When we trust God's plan for his church, it turns our discouragement into confidence. Instead of shame, we feel pride at the privilege God has given us to be part of his church. Now, to help us understand God's plan of using weakness to glorify himself, Paul spends a lot of time sharing his own story of how God used him to carry out his part of the salvation plan as an apostle. And by doing so, Paul helps us, as part of the church, 
to see the great privilege we have to be part of God's plan. So we're going to look over the passage in more detail. I'm going to break it down into four sections. The first section, verses 1 to 6, God reveals his salvation through the weak. In verses 7 to 9, we see that God empowers the least to make himself known. In verses 10 to 12, we see God's plan is to glorify himself through the church. And in verse 13, we we see that God's glory is revealed in weakness and suffering. So let me break down these points for us and how we can apply it. The first is that God reveals his salvation through the weak. Paul's a prisoner. That's what we're told in verse 1. At the same time, Jesus has entrusted Paul with this crucial role to play in the salvation of the whole universe. Paul is given a stewardship in verse 2. The word stewardship here means being entrusted to carry out a plan or a strategy. So God has a strategy. God has a plan. He's like, Paul, you've got to carry it out. Verses 3 to 5, to carry out this plan, God reveals to Paul hidden information about this plan of salvation. Information that nobody else in human history had the privilege to know until that point. The word mystery is repeated a couple of times in this passage. And it means something that was hidden or not known to people. So it's not like a mystery novel where it's like, you know, very mysterious. It's sort of something that was not known, but now it's known. That's what verse 9 tells us. It was hidden, something that God knew, but he didn't reveal it to people, but he revealed it to the Apostle Paul who revealed it to us. And what this mystery was is the full picture of how God would complete his plan to save the world. Verse 4 tells us more specifically, it's the mystery of Christ. No one knew who the Christ, who the Savior would be, and how he would save the world, but the mystery was made known to Paul, who shares with us in verse 6 that Jesus, the Savior, will unite all people in God's family through faith in his death and resurrection. Paul's mission from God was to make this known to all the churches of his time and to teach them to live it out. It seems very straightforward to us, like this is basic Christianity, but it was actually very new at the time, and we take that for granted. Now, in case you realize, there's actually a problem, because God has given Paul, Paul this great mission to make this truth known to all the churches. It's crucial for all the churches to know, but God allows Paul to be thrown in prison. In fact, the reason Paul was in prison was because of this mission from God. Paul was teaching that Jesus is the Christ and that Jews and Gentiles were equal before God. That's what we looked at in chapter 2. And this angered the Jews who were the ones who got Paul arrested. So so if Paul is stuck in prison, how is he going to reach all the Gentile churches all around the world that he's supposed to reach? God has made Paul a a general, like, like an army general metaphorically, for his salvation plan, but instead of deploying him on the front lines, God allows him to be captured by the enemy. But prison was exactly God's plan for Paul, and and Paul knew this. He wasn't discouraged. He knew that it was through his very weakness and limitations that God was going to accomplish the mission he entrusted 
to Paul. And so Paul starts writing all these letters to different churches, trusting that God was going to work. And we can see this in verse 4. Paul tells the Ephesians, when you read this letter, you're going to perceive insight into the mystery that God has revealed to me, this mystery of the salvation plan. And because Paul was stuck in prison writing letters, churches all across the ancient world could exchange letters and learn everything that God wanted Paul to teach the Gentile churches. Because Paul was stuck in prison, the letters that Paul wrote were kept and preserved and passed on from generation to generation and included in the Bible so that the church for all time, until Jesus comes back again, can read Paul's letters and understand the mystery that God had called him to reveal. Paul's very point of weakness was what God used to accomplish the mission. In fact, it was only because of Paul's weakness that the mission could be accomplished. If Paul had not been limited in prison, we wouldn't have the letters that we have in the Bible today. God, in his wisdom, reveals himself through the weak. But not only that, God empowers the weak to make himself known. Look at verse 7. Paul was made a minister or made a servant according to the gift of God's grace. Grace is undeserved, unearned favor from God. Not only are believers saved from sin by grace, we are also empowered by grace to obey and serve God. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this was also true for the Apostle Paul. God, in his grace, empowered Paul to be a minister of the gospel. And Paul was specifically empowered to do two things. The first is in verse 8. He was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches of, of Christ are all the blessings we looked at in chapter 1, like forgiveness, adoption into God's family, the presence of the Spirit, spiritual life in Jesus. Uh, the, these riches are, are unsearchable, meaning you can search and search and search, but never get to the end of them because they're infinite. So Paul was called to proclaim to the whole world all the blessings God wanted to give them through faith in Jesus. Paul's second task in verse 9 was to make known to believers God's plan to bring salvation to the world by uniting them together as a church. And, and we just talked about that uh, in the last point. See, th these are both really, really enormous tasks. Think, think of it this way. Uh, recently, uh, the organization that Evelyn works for went through an expansion. They appointed a, a vice president of East Asia, and the role of this vice president is to expand the organization into places like Japan and, and, and Korea. Uh, and the person they appointed was Evelyn's previous boss, and this person was chosen because he had all the right qualifications. He, he pioneered the organization in Hong Kong, he built it up, 
He is an extremely talented networker, communicator. He's a visionary. He's a big picture person. He excels at developing authentic relationships to inspire supporters for the organization. When corporations make hiring decisions, they choose the most qualified and competent people for the job. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, uh, recently shared his intention to, to retire in the next decade. And you can be sure that the person who takes his place will have a resume with skills just as great as his. But, but God doesn't work like this. He works in the exact opposite way. He doesn't choose the most qualified candidates to expand his kingdom. He doesn't select the most competent people to carry out his salvation plan. He chooses the most unqualified and empowers, to do, empowers them to do what he's chosen them to do. That's God's wisdom. Paul was the most unqualified person for the task of being an apostle. Verse 8 tells us he is the least of all the saints. It's a word that means the very least or, or, or the leastest. If you can make up a word, he's the leastest. As someone given the responsibility to teach people revelation directly from God, you would think that Paul would have to at least be a decent communicator. But that wasn't the case. Paul was a horrible communicator. That's what people in the churches would complain about. He, they would write letters to Paul saying, uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, you are impressive and your speaking amounts to nothing. That's what they said to him. Paul didn't have the confidence or presence people would expect out of a leader. He didn't have the speaking skills that really touched people's hearts or helped them understand things better. And it wasn't just Paul's speaking ability. It was his writing. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 tells us there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. So if you're reading Ephesians, if you're reading the letters and you think it's hard to understand, it's not just you. It's everyone in the church. He just keeps going on and on and on about his sentences. On top of Paul's total lack of skills, he also failed miserably in the area of character. You're going to hire Paul to be an apostle, do a background check. Uh, you find out that Paul was a violent man and a persecutor in 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul was basically a murderer and terrorist. That, straight up, that's what he was. Murderer and terrorist. And it was in the middle of going to commit acts of terrorism that God called Paul to be an apostle. Now you would think that, you know, amongst this list of incompetence that Paul has, you would think that he would have at least something going for him. But, but it doesn't. The list keeps going because the very things that Paul had, that Paul was good at, ended up working against him for his job. You know, Paul was known as a smart man. That, that, that's true. He was so smart. He spent his whole life studying Jewish law, tradition, and culture. But what Paul studied actually made it harder for him to do what God had called him to do because he spent his whole life learning how to please God by following Jewish law and traditions, 
And now he's teaching people how to please God by having faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. He spent his whole life learning about Jewish culture, trying to preserve his culture, and now God says, don't talk to the Jewish people, talk to the Gentiles. And, and whatever, isn't that so ironic? And whatever else Paul had going for him in his calling to be an apostle, God made sure these would not be the reasons why he was successful by constantly allowing him to be persecuted and thrown in prison. God even gave Paul a metaphorical thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 13. I won't go into detail about what that is, but it's definitely something that made Paul weaker than he already was. It was a source of pain that gave him some sort of disability in his day-to-day life. So we spent a lot of time talking about Paul because he spends a lot of time talking about himself in these verses. But what does this have to do with us? has everything to do with us. Without God's work through the Apostle Paul, there's no church today as we know it. You know, all of the things that God did for Paul in verses 1 to 9 is to bring God's end game in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. The next point is that God's eternal plan is to glorify himself through the church. That's point three. The Apostle Paul is a crucial leader for the universal church. And God's work through him gives us an example of how God works through his whole church to bring about his salvation plan. So think about this way. Setting the culture of a company is very important. An important way this happens is by appointing the right leaders who embody the values and character of the company. So Jesus is the CEO of the church. That's, that's pretty straightforward, uh, undisputed. Um, but he appoints the weakest, most unqualified person to be his COO. So that's his second, second command, so to speak, COO. And he sets limitations on this COO. In the eyes of the world, if you were to run a company, this, this is crazy. You're asking for your organization to fail. It's It's suicide. But but God's ways, God's wisdom is to take the very weakness of his church and use it to accomplish his glorious purpose of salvation. It's completely opposite than that of the world. The world operates by exerting dominance and power, demanding skill and 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 having being good enough, and then cutting off those who are weak. And, and you see this value system everywhere at schools, in the workplace, in your families. Behind this whole visible power system are the invisible powers of Satan, the the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But God comes in and uses the very weakness of people to do what no other power or organization can do, solve humanity's greatest problem, the problem of sin and death. He transforms sinners to be his workmanship of grace. He empowers them to make himself known to the world. He calls them to live together as his church. And his church shows a value system that's so contrary to the world. A system where weakness 
is not cut off, but where weakness is it's embraced, it's cherished, it's loved, because it allows God to show how amazing and how great and how beautiful He is. It's through this value system at work in the church that God works powerfully. And this brings us to the last point. Embracing God's wisdom in Jesus gives confidence in weakness. See, the whole point of verse 13 is that Paul is telling believers who are discouraged by weakness, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. It's actually your glory. Because there are two opposite ways of seeing the same situation. One is the church at that time. They look at weakness and they feel discouraged and defeated. The other is Paul's. He looks at weakness and he's filled with confidence, joy, excitement, hope, glory. God calls us to have confidence and weakness. And this happens when we embrace God's wisdom. God's ways of using the worst of the worst, the weakest of the weak, to show how amazing He is. And the way we embrace God's wisdom is through growing trust in what Jesus did at the cross when He died for our sin. Verse 11 tells us God's purpose is realized in Christ Jesus. How was it realized? Jesus died on the cross, completely weak, utterly humiliated, wholly despised, and shamed. But it's through this very weakness that God destroyed the powers of sin and Satan and darkness. When we became believers, when we became Christians, we admit that we are weak. We admit that we're helpless sinners who cannot do anything to please God. We then look to Jesus in all of his weakness at the cross, and we see it as power. We see it as beautiful and glorious because it has taken away our sin and shame. Jesus becomes the one we are proud and confident in, and we want to tell everyone about what he has done and how great he is. We start to see our weakness as strength. But many, but many times, we forget this crucial gospel truth because we live in a world that tells us the opposite. It tells us that our value and worth is found in how strong we are. Now, Hong Kong is all about being competent, about being the most efficient in what we do. I go to the, the doctors there that, that, you know, that's so fast that they do all the checkups. I go somewhere else to take like twice as long. And, and in our hearts, we, we allow the value system of the world to control us instead of the value system that Jesus calls us to have. And a good indication of which value system we're actually operating by is how we feel about weakness. Whether it's in ourselves, in other believers, in the church community. When we look at weakness and, and feel ashamed and discouraged and defeated, we're letting the world control us. We've lost sight of the gospel. Because God, he's not ashamed of our weakness. God doesn't see us as incompetent. And if you think that's true, that's wrong. You have to, you have to repent. You have to change your mind. God is not ashamed of our weakness. 
In fact, it's the opposite. God looks at our weakness. The thing that you feel is the most horrible thing, the worst point about your character or your personality, God sees it and he says, this is a perfect opportunity to show my power and glory and beauty. And when we believe this truth, it completely changes our lives. We become excited to serve God in our weakness because it allows God to display more of his grace through us. Our weaknesses become opportunities instead of limitations. And if we have doubts, we can just look to the Apostle Paul. He was not afraid to admit that he was weak. He was so transparent about all his weaknesses because he knew that God would use it for his glory. You know, we look at the Apostle Paul now, sort of hindsight, like thousands of years back, and he's actually like the example for a Christian. In every area, he excels above everyone else. In his service, what he's done for God, his sacrifice, and his power that he displayed as an apostle, and his in his character. And the reason why he excelled at all those things was because instead of trying to hide his weakness or make up for his weakness on his own, Paul trusted Jesus with his weakness. You know, what are the things that make you feel weak and unqualified this morning? Where do you feel like you're not reaching a certain standard? What makes you feel inadequate to serve others? It could mean so many things. It could be a past mistake or mistakes. We can feel like we're too old, or we can feel like we're too young, like we're too inexperienced, too, too lazy, too introverted, too extroverted, too unknowledgeable, and the list can go on and on and on. Can you trust that in your weakness, that God's using it for his glory? It's not just the Apostle Paul, it's every single believer. You're his workmanship. I think about the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. He suffered decades in depression. He was suicidal at points, but now we call him the Prince of Preachers. And there's a reason why his sermons were so great. We've learned so much from them over the past couple hundred years. But he felt so weak. Maybe it's not depression for you. Maybe it's something else. Let me ask you another question. Not moving from us individually to us as a whole church. What are the weaknesses about EEC that you have come to believe makes us ineffective to do God's work? won't let you them out here. You guys can just reflect. Because whatever those answers are, whether it's in yourself or in the community and others and the leaders, whoever it is, it's not true. God's using that very point of weakness for his glory, and we need to change our mind. We need to repent. We need to believe the gospel again. Jesus Christ, the perfect one, became the weakest to save the weak so that the weak could display the power and grace of God to the world as one united people. God uses the weakness of his church to display his wisdom and glory. This is such an amazing truth. You know, every time we gather, every time we, 
whatever we do together as a church, God is glorifying his name through us in our weakness. And this is such an amazing truth. It is such a privilege to be a Christian. It's such a privilege to be part of his church. It's such a privilege to experience the messiness and, and each other's sin. When we're living in repentance and faith, we're excited to go out and be a light to the world. We have confidence and joy. Let's just respond in prayer. I feel like I've said a lot. Let's give us some space. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And just going to have some time of reflection and let the Holy Spirit speak to us in our hearts. And for those of you who are joining online, I encourage you to do the same. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you and, and we thank you, God. Thank you that at the cross, Lord, you showed us the depths of weakness and the depths of shame and humility. But at the same time, you showed us the height of your glory and beauty and power. Thank you that we've experienced that for ourselves. And, and we ask, God, that we wouldn't be ashamed, Lord, we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We wouldn't be ashamed of the fact that we come to you, the weak and lowly Savior of the world, dying for our sins, for our strength. We pray that we would have the same perspective of the, as the Apostle Paul, Lord, that, that our weakness is, is our glory. And, and I pray that you would help us to see that more in our lives. Help us to see the ways in where we haven't trusted you with our weaknesses, where we're trying to be strong on our own, or where we're trying to cover up our weaknesses, God. Help us, Lord, to experience the freedom that comes when we truly trust you and we're truly able to live for your glory. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.